Our reading this morning comes from Genesis chapter 41. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile, and behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive plump cows, and Pharaoh awoke. And he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was no one who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Behold, in my dream, I was standing on the banks of the Nile. Seven cows, plump and attractive, came up out of the Nile and fed in the reed grass. Seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and thin, such as I had never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the thin, ugly cows ate up the first seven plump cows, and when they had eaten them, no one would have known that they had eaten them, for they were still as ugly as at the beginning. Then I awoke. I also saw in my dream seven ears growing on one stalk, full and good, Seven ears, withered, thin, and blighted by the east wind, sprouted after them, and the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears. And I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years. And the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt. But after them, there will arise seven years of famine 
and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. Now therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man, and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine." This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot and they called out before him, bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name zaphnath Peniah, and he gave him in marriage Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly, and he gathered up all the food of these seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, and put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea, until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. Before the year of famine came, Two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh. For, he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim. For God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. There was famine in all lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to the Egyptians, Go to Joseph. What he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Joseph, came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. 
This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everyone. Morning. It really is just a joy to be with you all this morning. It's, it's always a personal highlight for me to be with you. So really, thanks for the invitation to come and, and preach to you this morning and just to be with you. And um, many of you know this, I recently got back. My brother Andrew was with me from Namibia uh, visiting Josh and Lisa Kruger. And uh, my church won't let me do a 40-minute slideshow, but so before I begin... Um, <laughs> Uh, no, but I won't, uh, I know you guys just got an update at your missions weekend and kind of heard a little bit, hopefully about the trip, but more broadly, just what's going on over there. And, um, you should be encouraged uh, by what the Lord is doing over there. Um, just so much to be encouraged about the team there is just doing a wonderful job. They love preaching about Jesus. They love sharing the gospel. Um, the gospel is breaking new ground. It's breaking into hearts. So it's wonderful to be there. Lots to be praying for, um, the, the physical and the spiritual needs are significant. Um, and so I join you in praying for the people of Namibia. Um, so, um, but really, I, I just feel like I'm late to the party and what's going on over there. I just want to thank you for the way for years you have been giving sacrificially and generously to support the work over there. I know there have been times when you have been giving and it's been lean years here financially, but thank you for being faithful to give. Thanks for helping the mission be built over there. Thank you for praying for them, even as you have your own mission, even as you have things going on over here that require your sacrifice and your prayers and your time. Thank you for praying for them. Thank you for loving that family. It, it really was just a joy to be there. And so uh, I'm just glad to partner with you all in some way and how you guys are um, caring for them over there and supporting them. And um, excited that they'll be back uh, later this year to get, kind of give more of an update. But uh, just, it really is just a joy to partner with you uh, over there. Well, there used to be a TV uh, commercial series that, that ran a lot. I don't know if it still runs, but, but it was called The More You Know Campaign. So they would do this thing, and then there'd be this jingle that says, The More You Know, and it would sort of stay in your, uh, stay in your head. It was basically kind of just public service announcements, you know, so bas- you know, seatbelt saves lives kind of thing, like don't, don't smoke was, was one of the big ones, don't cook, you know, don't eat uncooked meat, you know, just sort of some basic things of public service, you need to know this, and there was a lot about recycling. It seemed like that was a major thing. They were just kind of hit recycling over and over and over again. And, and so they had this, the whole more, you know, but they had a particular strain that, that they really wanted to focus on education and they wanted to focus on, on the idea of staying in school. And so, and, and they, would, they would end with this phrase of that knowledge is power, that knowledge is power. And so I, I, don't, I don't know, I don't think that's a new idea. I don't think that was something that they invented, you know, by celebrities in, in the 80s. But, but it, for me, it was sort of stuck out that that knowledge is power and that with knowledge that we're empowered to live a certain way and that knowledge is meant to produce something in us that's not just theoretical, but we act on the knowledge we have. Now, whether you know of those commercials or not, I think they reveal something that is true but something that is true, not just and relevant, not just for the week of Earth Day, but, but has real implications for our spiritual life as well. That, that knowledge really has a power. That knowledge is not just something we, we have up here, but it should produce something in us. That, that knowledge produces something in us. That, that the knowledge of God gives a real power for living for God. Chapter 41 of Genesis, Joseph is used mightily by God. In historical terms, he is, I mean, he, 
He has a, really, the plan that he enacts saves a nation. It really saves more than just the nation of Egypt in the sort of the, the arc of redemptive history. He is used mightily by God as, as sort of the, the people of God are, is this tiny family. And, and by, by the end of the story, they're a nation living in Egypt. So he is used mightily by God. And it's clear as the story of Joseph unfolds in Genesis that he knows God and that he has faith in God. And his faith and his love of God are rooted in, in, what, in what he knows to be true of God. He just doesn't sort of have this vague faith of, well, you just sort of got to believe in God, but he has a real knowledge of things that are true of God. And so his knowledge is not just theoretical, but it's very functional. So as we dig into this chapter, we'll see what knowledge of God he had, and we'll see that we can have that as well. It's not just a theoretical knowledge we gain. We have true knowledge of God that leads to our lives being different and being used more effectively for his service. So our passage shows us this morning not only what he knew, but that we can know it too, and we can be transformed by this knowledge, the knowledge we learn more of the knowledge that sustained him in the pits that he just came out of in chapter 40 and now guides him in the pinnacle he now finds himself. So as he was in prison, the same knowledge of God now sustains him as he's in command. So let's pray, and then we'll jump in studying God's word. Well, Father, I do pray that you would give us, um, just, that you'd give us each just illumination, that you would give us each understanding of the treasures found in your word. And Lord, I do pray that we would be those who not just gain a, a deeper head knowledge of, of what's in your word, that Lord, we would lead to, we would have a knowledge that transforms our hearts and lives, that, that tomorrow morning would be different because of, of, what, of how we see you in your word. And so Lord, would you do this this morning as we, as we study this text, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So, right knowledge of God leads to right living for God. Right knowledge of God leads to right living for God. And there's going to be four points that we're going to pull out of the text this morning. Point number one, so sort of what are four things that, that Joseph knew about who God was? What are four things that he learned about himself through this knowledge? The first thing we see is know who is sovereign. Know who is sovereign. So the text this morning starts out by telling us that two more whole years had passed. So this is two more years into Joseph being wrongly imprisoned. So this just, if you were just, you start adding the years. So Joseph has been not only in prison, he's been wrongly in prison for now just year after year after year. Now two more years go by that he's wrongly in prison. Two more years that he's out of his homeland, sort of just, he is the, he is the one who has just suffered at the wrongdoing of others, years of abandonment. Two more years have gone by, and Pharaoh has a pair of dreams. Now, if you've been here for the series or if you're familiar with the story, you know, you know what they don't know in the story, that this is actually the third set of dreams that, that are pertinent in this story. All of them have been prophetic in nature. All of them ha have the pattern of God of revealing what he is about to do. And so Pharaoh has a dream, and, and no one knows what it is, and so he, he gathers everybody together to find out what it is, and, and no one knows. And in the midst of no one knowing what this dream means, the, the cupbearer suddenly remembers that he had a time when no one could interpret a dream for him. He was in a similar dilemma, and someone helped him out, this Hebrew named Joseph. 
So the last chapter before this, the cupbearer had a dream. Joseph interpreted it correctly. And because of that, this cupbearer is alive today. And he has, he has, a, he has a job near, the, near Pharaoh because, because Joseph was able to interpret this dream. It's remarkable it really is remarkable that this man had forgotten one, what, one of these events that would just be one of the major events you could never forget type of events in his life, yet he had forgotten. And two years later, he is prompted to remember. Now, this is no coincidence. And this man is not being spiteful. He, he just forgot. Now, now, what's interesting is if he had sort of remembered something earlier, right? I think there would have been this sort of maybe collective shrug, shrug by Pharaoh. Like, why, why are you telling me about this guy who interpreted your dream? Like, I don't really care. And maybe, maybe Joseph would have been released if he had found out what had happened, but he would not have had a, an audience right before Pharaoh. So, so the timing of this is, is no coincidence, but this man forgot. See, if, if, if the timing was any different, the story would be Pharaoh has a dream, no one's able to interpret it, right? And then the story would just sort of stop but God had a, a different plan, and so this man would now remember. God prompted this man to remember when the moment was right, and the moment was now right. So God was in complete control over the timing of both this man's forgetting and this man remembering. Pharaoh calls up Joseph. He tells him the dream, and it's clear, right, that, that, that Pharaoh is spooked by the dream. Verse 8 says that he is trouble. He adds details to the dream that are particularly frightening, right? The cows aren't just thin and ugly. They're, they're particularly ugly. Like they're just sort of scary looking to Pharaoh. And so Pharaoh's looking to know what, what's going on and, and what do they mean. He, he has an awareness that these aren't just sort of random dreams he had. And they can't escape Pharaoh's mind. He's just sort of consumed by these dreams until he finds someone to tell him the meaning. And Joseph is able to tell him the meaning. Seven great years of food and provision, followed by seven years of severe drought. The drought will be so severe it will destroy the plenty unless you act, unless you respond to the revelation of God. If you act during the plenty, you'll have enough to survive the drought. Now, now Joseph is, is being clear on a couple of things. He's being clear that God is the one giving him the interpretation, right? Verse 16 makes clear that this is, this is not me doing, this is not Joseph, the, uh, you know, the one who has this gift. This is God who has this ability, and he is using Joseph to, to convey the message. So he continues to be clear that God is the one doing this. Now, Joseph's not doing this to sort of remove himself from the impact of it. Like, hey, if you don't like it, just so you know, it's God, not me, you know, so... You know, I know you kind of like to hang people who you don't like, so let's just, let's just take back. Now, this is just a, this is just giving credit. This is just a humble and accurate assessment of what's going on. Now, this isn't me. This is, this is God. Makes it clear God will tell me what to say. God will give you an interpretation. Now, that might not strike us as odd, right, that this man is saying that God will do this. Except in this day, Pharaoh was considered a god. Pharaoh was worshipped. Pharaoh considered himself a god. And so Joseph is making this clear. And this passage is making this quite clear. Pharaoh, you are not God. There is one who is much higher than you, and he is about to reveal to you. Listen, God reveals, and you can respond. 
Pharaoh is not the one in authority. There is one with a, great, with a much greater title, one with more authority. And verse 28 says it starkly, God has told you, Pharaoh, what he is about to do. So he is telling Pharaoh something is happening. It's not up to me and it's not up to you. We're not taking a poll. Your plans and purposes have no say in what God is about to do. God has an appointed end and he is bringing it and you are not changing it. Here's the choice you have to respond appropriately to it, but you cannot determine it. So the the weather is under his control because the earth is under his control. All the natural systems of the earth, they are not natural. They are under his sovereign control and power. So Pharaoh, you think you are God. Here's the deal. You're not. Pharaoh, you think you are powerful. Here's the deal. You are about to find that you are a marginal player in the history of the nation of Egypt. Whatever you do, this is happening because the sovereign one of history has determined it to be so. So Pharaoh has an opportunity to respond appropriately to the appointed end, but he is not given a choice as to what the appointed end is. The most powerful man on earth at that time has simply no power compared to God. Now beyond this story, we are aware that history itself has an appointed end, and the end is not open for discussion or chance. It's not determined by any king or any citizen. It's determined by God alone. And humanity's job is to respond according to the end, for we cannot alter it. Now, we're going to talk more about the idea of, of, of knowing sort of the end and having the end in, in mind and, and a little bit later on. But, but I want to ask you a question just for your con- personal consideration. Listen, if the most powerful nation, we had the most powerful nation on earth at that time, and the most powerful man in that nation had very little control over the affairs of that nation. I want to ask you, what's, what's the biggest factor, or who, who, what, what person is the biggest factor in determining your life? Now, now, I'm aware the correct answer is the sovereign God of history, but as you think about your life, as you think about who the biggest person is having an impact on your life, what's, what's your real answer? Let me be clear, you, you play a role, for sure. But the answer is not yourself or your boss or your spouse or your parents or government. It really is God. He really is in the one in sovereign control. What's the, what's the biggest force in your life right now? What, 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 what force weight? weighs biggest in, in, in how your life is, is walked out and, and where your life will be going? Is it your sin or some past decision you've made or is it, is it luck or maybe some future decision you'll make? No, the, the, the sovereign God is, is the biggest person. He is the biggest force in our lives, which should lead to tremendous comfort and peace and joy if you know him. Because we know his purposes are, are standing and will stand and nothing will thwart them. But it also means if you do not know him, you must get right with him. Because he has revealed that he has no rivals. And it's only in submission to him that we find mercy from him. Second thing we, we see that he knew is 
and that we are to know is to know your true identity. Know your true identity. Through all the trials, and, and Joseph had trials, and through all the pain he faced, and he faced plenty. He had overt temptation, right? All throughout his life, he had you know, overt temptation and Potiphar's wife. And I actually believe the, the greatest temptation we see in the life of Joseph is actually found in the second half of this chapter where he experiences blessing and abundance. He's made second in command in all of Egypt. He's given a ring from Pharaoh's hand. He's given the finest of clothes. Others had to bow in reverence and respect to his title. A personal note, he, he, he gets married. He has two kids. He's, he's, he's a national hero. His plan works. He literally saves a nation with his oversight, makes the nation wealthier as, as other nations come and buy food from them makes them more influential and powerful in the world. He's powerful. He's rich. He's young. He's handsome. He's the dream for Hollywood, right? I mean, he's just, he's that guy. Now, how many people have we read about that, that have all that, and that becomes a pitfall for them spiritually because they, 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 they sort of forgot who they were, and, and they sort of become someone else, and they begin to fall away. Actually, for, for most, it it's, takes far much less than what he experienced to to be tempted to fall away. And yet we, see, don't, we don't see sign of pride in these passages. Well, he was in the sort of the literal pit of life down at the bottom, and now while he's at the peak, we see this steady obedience. Remember earlier he said, Pharaoh, I, 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 can't, I, I can't interpret your dreams. No, 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 God is the one who gives you meaning. He seemed to just live his, his life with this attitude of, I can do nothing on my own, but, but, it, but it's, it's God who gives to me. This just permeated his, his entire life. Was, was, it's, it's God who enables. And our dynamic, the dynamic between me and God, it, it, is, it is God who is, who is the one doing. I, I might be an instrument he uses, but God is the one who is working and doing. Success never changed his outlook he, he it never made his switch from, from only God to, to well, a, li- a little bit of Joseph mixed in. He didn't have this attitude of, well, I know I'm down at the bottom, you know, but God's placed me here, so this must be a God thing. But now that he gets to the top, it wasn't this, well, maybe it's more of a 50-50 sort of dynamic. No, 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 it's, it's God accomplishes 100%. Humanly, it might be through me, but it's him accomplishing. It's him accomplishing. It's because he knew his identity. He was shaped more by the promises of God than by any claims of this world or of his circumstances. But you see, much more than just having that attitude, we also see that Pharaoh, Pharaoh had an intention, and Pharaoh had an intention on making Joseph an Egyptian. I don't blame Pharaoh for that, right? He had, he had a high rank in the government. He was the second highest man in all of government. But in verse 45, Pharaoh gave him an Egyptian name. Joseph had an Egyptian wife. He lived in Egypt. His language is Egyptian. His clothing was Egyptian. His father-in-law was a very prominent Egyptian. And you might think that Pharaoh succeeded in making him an Egyptian. Except we see in verses 50 through 52 that Joseph knew who he really was. For, for my wife and I, when we were naming our kids, we 
we spent a long time thinking about the name. I don't know if you've, if, for those of you who have kids, if just sort of you picked a name out of a hat or if you spent, you know, months, but especially for, for our oldest daughter, we spent literally just months trying to find out, you know, like we were, we had lists of names and we would cross names off of each other's lists. And it was just a big deal then because we had this sense of like the name, like it, it communicates something, right? Like the, the, the name has, has a meaning and a significance behind it. And so we, we took far too long naming, naming our children, but, 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 it, but it really, it, it was a big deal to us because we had this sense of like, we, we really want the name to convey something about our hopes and our dreams for them. And so our oldest daughter is, is named Evangeline because our prayer from, from the womb has just that she'd be one who would live her life to proclaim the name of Jesus with her life and lips. And our son, DeAndre, is, is adopted. And so his name is DeAndre Braddock Campbell. And so his, his birth mom gave him the name DeAndre. And Braddock was the road we'd drive on to, to go to the agency. And we'd just pray on Braddock Road over and over for his life. And, and Campbell, obviously, his last name. And so we just, we wanted his name to capture something of the, of the fuller identity and so, sort of part of his story of, of how he became a Campbell. Now, Joseph was a prominent Egyptian and he was married to a family of prominence. At this point, he had been there over half of his life, but it is clear that he is no Egyptian. He's just, he's just living there. That's why he gave his children Hebrew names. So he named his children. They not only were Hebrew names, they had names that at their very meaning were the plans and purposes of Yahweh. It, it is clear that for Joseph... And for his children, Egypt was a temporary place. Even if they lived there their entire earthly life, Hebrew is his identity. So I think one of the things that made Joseph so effective is that he, he was very aware that, yes, God is the one who accomplishes. I'm the instrument, but it, it's not me. It's, it's him. It's his strength. It's his wisdom. It's his sovereign plan and purposes. And I think it's this, that I live among a people and I serve a people. I seek the good of a people. But my identity is not that I'm this people. It's that I'm his. See, I think if he lived to please his father-in-law, I think he, his kids are getting Egyptian names, but they have Hebrew names because he lives to please his God. And he wants to be clear, I'm training them to worship him. I think if he lived to please Pharaoh, he probably tones down some of the, you, you know, Pharaoh, you're not God. You're not God. You're not God. O only God language around Pharaoh, but he never does. I think if he lived to please the people, at some point he might be tempted to maybe give in to some demands that I'm sure they were having, you know, like in year six of great abundance, it might seem a little silly to them. Do we still have to give 20% of all we have? I mean, this just seems high because we're going on, you know, record crops six years in a row. Maybe, maybe scale back how much you need, but he, he never, never caves. He, he doesn't because he lives to serve God. Now, in terms of world history, right, Joseph is up there on the human impact he had on the world around him. There's no doubt in how tremendously he served but to Joseph, there was no conflict in who he really lived to serve. A person of God serves the world around them, but their loyalty lies not to the world around them. It lies in service to God. And I'm sure in many ways Joseph fit in, but in many more ways, I'm sure he absolutely stood out. 
And I believe God uses those most effectively in service in his world who are willing to stand out rather than blend in in the world around them who might have some resemblance to the world, but upon any real inspection, it's obvious they aren't citizens of this world. And so Joseph was aware of where he lived, but he was also aware of who he really was and why he was. That he was a Hebrew from another land for another land. Egypt was his mission field. It was never his destination. And this wasn't because he made a choice. It's because God did. God chose his father and his father before him and his father before him because God chose a people. And he was secure in his identity because his identity didn't rely on his own faithfulness, but on the faithfulness of God who made a promise. It didn't depend on circumstances, but on the faithfulness of God who made a promise. And so he was able to confidently walk as part of God's community because he already had God's favor. He didn't have to walk sheepishly as if he was trying to secure it. And if you are in Christ, your identity is in him. And it's wonderful that our circumstances don't determine our identity. Your own faithfulness doesn't determine your identity. Christ determines your identity. Third thing to know from this passage is know the future is certain. Know the future is certain. In this passage, Joseph is able to tell the future. Now, it's obvious he knew it because God gave him the interpretation of a dream. And then sort of the double dream, sort of it meant it was a fixed reality. The the reality was for Joseph is he just lived with this awareness that if God says it, it happens. That those 14 years are going to occur because God said they were going to occur. He didn't wait till sort of year three of sort of the great growth and say, you know, this actually lines up with something previously I heard. No, no, he said, God says it. So reality is fixed. 14 years, here is what the crop cycle is going to look like. But I also love that it does not lead to, to passiveness or resignation, but it led to aggressive action. I love that for him knowing the future, knowing that God is sovereign and the future is fixed as a fixed reality by the king of kings. I love that, that it made him work and it put him to action. See, knowing these things for us should, should, should set us to work and to act in our day. There should be, there should be no indifference in our day. Now, we don't work to manipulate the future. We work because we know the future. And so rightly understood, knowing that he is in sovereign control, knowing that he has already revealed to us what the future holds does not lead to passiveness, but being followers of him in action. If you have kids or really ever been around a kid, you know if if you're within like the same month as a child's birthday for the most part, like you know when the child's birthday is, right? Like because they... They just know it's kind of on. They know the future. You know, if there's some date has, you know, their birthday on it and it's, you know, what they want to talk about. And when's your birthday? Anyway, here's mine. You know, I mean, they just sort of have those kind of conversations. But you ever, I don't know if you ever planned like a birthday party with a kid. And I don't know, maybe this is our kids, but I think it's more universal. Like when we've, we do birthday parties for them every other year and I won't get into all the details, but when we're, when we're having a birthday party, now they, they know what the birthday party is, right? They know, they know the plan. They know when it is like, they kind of like, that's all fixed reality, right? They, 
And yet to watch them spring into action over like the food plan, like they, we don't have a lot of discussions about like the food plan on a day-to-day life, but for the birthday party, like they're springing into action. What's the cake going to be decorated? Hey, do you want me to go with you to the store to buy cake decorated? I mean, there's just sort of this, this spring of action that they have, not because they're hoping the party happens, but because they know the party's happening. They're sort of enthused about the party and, and jo- sort of doing what they can to sort of participate. Listen, we know the future. I've never been given a dream like this, but I know the future because God has revealed it to me and he has revealed it to you. He has revealed it to all mankind through this book. He has revealed it. It is certain. And so that calls us to action. Listen, I I know how the story of the church ends. It ends with her purified and spotless makes me want to invest my life into the church. It makes makes me have eyes of faith when I I look at the church, when I I see trials that the the church is is going through. It it informs the prism I view. These aren't, these these trials, these hardships in the church right now are meant to purify her, not not destroy her. And so so it helps me walk with, with eyes of faith and knowing how the mission ends, that every tribe and tongue are going to be gathered around the throne, and knowing that all he will save are not yet saved makes, I'll tell you what it makes me do, it makes me want to go and tell people the good news about Jesus Christ. It makes me want to go to my neighbors, and it makes me, it makes me want to pray for the Krugers in Namibia. It makes me, it makes me want to pray for the Wendell Myers, and, and it makes me excited about what's going on in Bolivia. The fact that, that we know how the mission ends doesn't, doesn't make me lackadaisical towards the mission. It makes, it makes me want to go and be part of the mission. Listen, the fact that he's returning should give us courage and conviction should give us temporary try should give a perspective to our trials listen my trials are not easy neither are yours but it should give us the perspective that they they really are temporary it should give us the perspective that they know that listen he returns which means he will complete what he starts which means he sin does not win my sin does not win he wins he already won and he wins so i know that one day my kids will stand before God and give an account. I don't, I don't wonder if this is true. It's not my leading theory at the moment based on the evidence I've put together. I know that one day, here is a fixed certain reality. One day, my kids will stand before the throne. And they will stand before the king and they will give an account for their life. Listen, it makes me want a parent makes me want to pray, makes me want to tell them the story they've heard hundreds of times before. So we, we know how the story ends. And because we do, we have absolutely nothing to be passive about. Fourth thing we know, or we learn to know from this story, is know the purpose of his positioning. Know the purpose of his positioning. I think Joseph is effective in large part because he understood the purpose of being blessed. He is a wonderful example as one who not just understood that God was behind his, his trials, though we see that in his life, but we also see that Joseph is aware that God is the one behind his blessing for his purposes. 
He was made a father to train them in what it means to be a Hebrew, how to live as a faithful children of him in a land not their own. They didn't exist to further Joseph's purposes, but God's. He was given power and authority, not so that people would think Joseph is wise, but no, he was given power and authority so that he could serve and care for a people, so that those around him who would see the plan unfolding would see, not see the wisdom of Joseph, but would see the wisdom of the God of Joseph. He was given position and status and title, not to make much of Joseph, but so Joseph could serve his God and his purposes by by primarily serving these people. In some ways, I I think it's it's easy to see that. I think it's easy when we kind of look on the outside and we kind of see how the story ends. I think it's easy to see how he positions certain people. When, when it seems like everything Joseph touches for this period and just prospers, it's very easy to kind of have this perspective of, I guess he understood why he was doing it. I'm sure there were real struggles. I'm sure there were real struggles to raise his children as the only Hebrew children they knew. I'm guessing there were days of pushback. I'm guessing there were days if he's like any leader in human history when his policies were not popular or understood. I'm sure there were days when the famine was near that there were, you know, his good friends and acquaintances subtly suggesting that maybe they get to move to the front of the line this time. And more likely when press was good, he might have been tempted to think how impressive he really was. But what we see here is a, a faithful picture of a man and how, and how God used him. And I think it's primarily because he understood that God positioned him where he did, not for his purposes, but for God's purposes. Now, I'm guessing he has placed you in certain positions. He has placed you in certain orbits and circles, not of highest status as one of the most significant leaders in the history of of the world, but he has placed you where he has placed you for his sovereign purposes. Why Why has he made you a parent? Is it so that you could... Have children live their, life, live their life thinking of your greatness so that they would, you know, sing your praises so you could have these little people extolling your virtues? I don't know if this is a me and my kids thing, but I'll say good luck with that if that's sort of your purpose in parenting. Whereas part of the purpose that he has made you a parent is because one generation must tell the next generation of the greatness of our God. And he has given you these little image bearers that you are to raise and that you are to love and that you are to care for and that he has given you with the mission of tell them about me so that you can reveal my greatness through your faithful labors and through the asking of forgiveness of them and letting them know that their hope and their dreams, that sort of the way they're going to come out is not, their hope is not that you're going to be a perfect mom or a perfect dad, but you've been entrusted to me so that I can tell you of the one who is perfect. So you've made a parent not so you can sort of have somebody and sort of have the status of of whatever your children produce, so that you can point them to him. God has given you certain friends. He hasn't given you certain friends just because it's fun for you. He's given you people in your life so that you can point them to him. Everyone you know, everyone who's in your friend circle, I'm convinced that I don't know your friends, I don't know their circumstances, here's what I know about them. They need to regularly be pointed to him, whether they know him now or not. And you've, he's given you in their circle so that you can point them to him with your life and with your lips. 
One of the things I love, because I know Matthew and Josh and Chris, one of the reasons I, I know they are convinced that they are called to leave, one of the, it was cool just to, I mean, for me, just to, to see the 11 care group leaders all up here. I, I, I know this, listen, they're not leading because they really like having followers. They're, they're not leading because they, 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 they like to be made much of. I know they lead because they love you. And they want to take you to the one place, to the one person where you can go and be changed. And so, so they, they want to lead by serving you, by directing you to them. And that's why they want to lead. That's why they want to step into positions of leadership. It's not so they can have a bunch of followers. It's because they want to take people to the one place and source we have to be changed and encouraged. If you're a student, here's what I, I know. God has placed you in whatever school you're in. It's easy to think, well, no, actually, I decided on the school I want. Or my, my parents picked my school. Or the government based, you know, picked the school I'm in based on where, where we're in. No, no, no. God placed you in your school. And I don't know all the details, but I know he has placed you in your school for the good of those around you. Because I'm, I'm convinced of this. Students need to know about Jesus. Students that know Jesus need to know more about him and need to be encouraged in him. Students that don't know Jesus need to be told of Jesus. And he has placed you in that school. Many of you have have means, and it's both to be blessed, right? It's, it's to be blessed, but it's to be a blessing to others. God has given you gifts and skills. The purpose of you being given a gift or skill is not so that everyone can marvel at your gift. It's so that others can be pointed to the giver of the gifts. So how do you do at the things that God has given to you and stewarded to you? Because position and time and gifts and resources are things we, we steward for him, not things to make more of us. And so I'm convinced that Joseph was transformed and effective because of his knowledge of God. And he knew that God was sovereign. He knew his identity was in him. He knew that his future was certain because it was revealed by him. And that God was positioning him for the good of others. So Joseph was faithful. We should be faithful. But this isn't a call just to gather your strength and be as faithful as you can be. Listen, I think if we think that way, here's what's going to come. Well, okay, I'll try my best and really my life's going to be about my own effort, my own self-effort, my own just trying and trying and trying to to be as faithful as I can be. And again, we want to be faithful, but... I think we were going to be tempted to think, well, you know, maybe, maybe Joseph had some secret. Maybe he had some secret knowledge that I have access to. Or maybe he just had a power of self-will that I just don't have. Or maybe someday I'm going to, you know, find some hidden revealed something knowledge somewhere. Because, because at best, when I put sort of my record sort of up to it, I, at best I'm mixed. I'm not going to be as as faithful probably as this man. I'm not going to be as faithful as I need to be. I think it would be a discouraging thought if we just walked away with a sense of, well, Joseph was faithful, so I, I need to be faithful too. See, fortunately, that's not true. See, here's how knowledge produced 
sort of how, how, how knowledge produced the, the, the ability to follow God for Joseph. Listen, it was this sense of, I, I'm called to be faithful, but, but my hope is not in my faithfulness. My hope is that God is perfectly faithful and God is unchanging. Listen, this, this chapter, we have, a, we have a faithful follower of God. But all throughout the story of Joseph, and I know you're, you're going to continue it. You've, you've been studying it. Listen, Joseph is not the main character of the story of Joseph. The story of the, of the drama of Joseph's life and of the story of redemption that we, that we see here is, is of a faithful God. And the God who revealed himself to Joseph is the God who reveals himself to us. This God is not waiting to be discovered. He's revealed who he is. He's revealed what he's done. He's revealed that he is able to be known. Not just known of, but known personally. Not just, not just be studied, but to be called on. Now, Joseph reveals that God is able to be known, but Joseph's story never reveals how is God able to be known, given that man is fallen, that man is sinful, that, that, that we, even as we were singing about for when we sing about the greatness of God, we understand implicitly, I am not the one who can measure up to God's greatness. As, as we think about God's greatness and his grandeur and his holiness, we realize how, fall, how far short I fall, and that's before even talking about our sin. So how can, how can we have a relationship with God? How can we really know, not just about this God, but how can we actually know this God who is holy and transcendent and above us? How is he able to be known given we are who we are? Because he took all that separated us from him, all the sin of man and all the shame of man, all, he took all that we were and he took it upon himself and then he gave us the righteousness of his son. And then he, we is, he has not only revealed himself to us, but then he has given us eyes to see him for who he is through the person of the Holy Spirit. We are able to know him because he has revealed himself to us. Because of what he has done in Jesus Christ, he gives us an identity and a future and a purpose, not because we deserve one, not because we might measure up someday to be as good as Joseph, but because he took our identity of sinner and he took our guilt and he took our shame, he took our brokenness and our dirtiness and our neediness and he gave us his identity as saint and adopted by God and loved by God and bought by Christ and sealed with the Holy Spirit. And so now with whatever we walk through in life, if we are in Christ, our identity doesn't change and our identity is not defined by us. Our identity is not defined by how faithful we are on any given day, but our identity is bought and determined by him. Our future is fixed and it is glorious because he left glory to experience shame. We deserved a future of fear and wrath, but he took all that upon himself so that we have a future of filled with glory and hope and not just something that we look forward to and sort of hope might happen, but our future, if you are in Christ, is a fixed reality. We have a purpose because we have been bought with a price. 